Hello, film clubbers. Whoa. Is that on? Hooray. Uh, hurrah. Once again, the uh, Greg Proof Film Club convenes, this time from the salubrious confines of the hipster enclave of Los Feliz, uh, here at the Los Feliz 3, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, we're back after a year and a bloody half. Hooray. Um, the last live gig that I did before the plague was March 11th at the Aero Cinema in Santa Monica when we showed uh, High and Low uh, by Kurosawa. This is the first time I've been on stage since then. So if you don't mind, I'm just gonna cry for about 25 minutes and uh, then get quietly drunk in the corner and tell you how much I love you, if that's all right. A lot of you were hoping for material and incisive film commentary tonight, but instead it's gonna be a pity party uh, where I fall all over myself because I really haven't been anywhere or done anything. I've eaten out twice in a year uh, and I've traveled fuck nowhere. Uh, the year before the plague hit, I was in Japan, Dublin, Glasgow, London, Paris, all over the United States, Alaska, and Canada. And last year, I went to um, uh, Atwater Village. Well, I didn't go there, I drove by it. And uh, now here we are. Um, Mm, there's vodka in there, uh, but I'm off the drink for the moment. I don't know about anyone else, uh, but uh, I've drank uh, like I was released from hell for the last year and a half, uh, literally as if I had been entombed and then resurrected. That's how much I've been drinking every day. This, by the way, this pissant amount of vodka that they've given me here tonight wouldn't even been an hors d'oeuvre in the last year and a half of the comprehensive ocean of my alcohol consumption. So I appreciate it and I look at it and I laugh. Ha ha ha, thank you. Um, but again, uh, it's nice to be here. Tonight's fi uh, picture is the 1953 classic by the master Jacques Tati, uh, Michel Hulot's Holiday. Uh, and uh, uh, so much has changed over the last year and a half. For instance, um, we have a new uh, regime uh, running the country, which is uh, maybe the most refreshing thing in my life. Um, not that this show is about politics or anything, um, but for all the redneck, dickhead, bohunk, peckerwood, hee-haw, gun-toting, psycho-Christian, anti-choice, um, gimme-cap-wearing, truck-driving, people with a dog in the back, giant belt buckle with their name on it that they wear upside down so they can go, oh shit, that's my name. <laughs> people who tried to attack the Capitol and voted for Hitler. Um, they have a, uh, I invite them, and in fact I extend the most heartfelt and a warm invitation to take a long, cold drink out of my liberal ass until the end of time. I am making shake a puddin' uh, that they are uh, invited to partake in uh, forever and ever and ever. And for all the people who don't believe in vaccinations uh, because um, you don't know how it's made, you didn't have any problem snorting methamphetamine off a of fucking urinal, did you? You were drinking hillbilly fucking margaritas uh, out of a Mountain Dew jug for the, your, the whole of your life and having sex with your cousin and beating her because your team lost. So I really don't want to hear now about how you're an epistemolo epistemolo medical expert. <laughs> if you're against getting vaccinated, I don't even want to hear about it because your IQ is somewhere between a salamander and Tommy Lee from Motley Crue <laughs> and a potted plant and an unpotted plant. Uh, 
And that's where we're at now. So it's awesome. We have uh, Joe Biden as president. We have a black woman as vice president. A lot of people are like, why was everybody so upset and why did they attack the Capitol? Well, you may remember a black woman was elected vice president and then a black man and a Jew were elected senators from Georgia. And um, that's pretty much all it took. It would be like changing the prices at Arby's. Next thing you know, no one can buy a nugget or whatever, and, and torches are lit, and uh, torpedoes are, are mounted, and mankinis are engaged, and Viking helmets are put on, and I am going to cry. <laughs> I saw Eddie Pepitone outside. Eddie Pepitone is a very, very uh, strangely popular comic here in Los Angeles, and uh, uh, we've been friends a long time. Whoa, God damn, I think I just folded the chair on myself. For real. I totally fucking folded the chair back. You know, this is a slapstick movie. That was Lance. And uh, I was going to use him as a cushion if the chair didn't fold back out. Thank you for doing that. Um, because of my Semitic background, I'm unable to uh, do anything mechanical. I do, however, look like I run business affairs so I can walk into any set in Hollywood. If I have a briefcase in my hand, everybody just backs the fuck up. Thank you for knowing what that is. I saw Eddie outside, and um, I said to him I was going to cry because I haven't been on stage in a year, and he said, man, you've really changed. Um, mass death has made you sensitive. <laughs> I like to think that's how it's gone. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the places that we did go before, um, in the before times, when you were allowed to go places, you can go places now, Greg. <laughs> um, I have a gig in Texas later in the year, and I'm really looking forward to it because uh, um, I want to see a bunch of maskless um, hillbillies screaming at me in laughter so that I can run from their droplets. Uh, the, uh, one of the places we went was Paris, France, and uh, this picture, of course, is a French picture. By the way, uh, Jacques Tati's next picture after this one, uh, Mon Uncle, won the best foreign film, which is my favorite category and the Academy Awards, um, because it couldn't be more patronizing. Um, it's the best film, but it's not from here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, we let them make films in other countries, and sometimes we watch them or whatever, and then we're like, that was good. You know what that was missing? Um, someone didn't turn into a lizard and have a fist fight with a superhero on top of a building for 45 minutes. That was what was missing from that. Uh, last year's Oscars were great. I don't know if anyone watched the Academy Awards. How do you have a captive audience, everyone trapped in at home, and have the worst ratings of all time? That is the magic of the Academy. <laughs> and uh, if anyone watched it, it was a unique of all Academy Awards shows that I've ever seen because they didn't show clips from any of the movies. So we've reduced movies to just people talking about them basically now, which is basically what my show is. So I feel pretty comfortable about it. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, lobbying the Academy to be the opening 30 minutes of the Oscar show this year, where I'm just going to talk about how I feel. 
about movies. And then, well, here's some clips from our films. Mm-mm. I'm just going to talk about it some more. Oh. So as you know, the French have a massive tradition of comedy uh, from Max Linder, who was a contemporary of Chaplin, and uh, 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 to uh, Jacques Tati, who was a live performer, and then uh, did a, a, a circus act with lots of slapstick and whatnot, and then became a filmmaker. And a very persnickety filmmaker in so much as he didn't use actors. A lot of the people you'll see in this picture are just people. And he didn't call like lights, camera, action. He just like start shooting, uh, which is awesome. I don't know if you've ever been on a film set before, uh, but for them to not go speed, camera, lights, all that, uh, to just start shooting is an amazing thing. And to not use actors. Because here in Hollywood, we just use people who've come from the Midwest and want to succeed. Thank you. That was a lot funnier than you gave it credit for, but since it's my first show in a year and a half, we're going to move slowly and not judge. So we're in France, and uh, France gets a bad reputation in America because um, we're puritanical, um, parochial, um, hillbilly morons. And so we have a strange view of the rest of the world. Any place where people are sophisticated and uh, are always dressed up and, and read books and um, have TV shows where people smoke and argue, uh, right? As opposed to TV shows where uh, it's a talent show every night on network TV or America's Funniest Dog or whatever it is or Simon Cowell giving his opinion, which is always illuminating. Um, <laughs> As I've said before, the two worst things, three worst things England exported to the United States were syphilis, Piers Morgan, and Simon Cowell. And uh, that, that's what's intimidating, I think, for people. And they're always like, the French are rude. The French are not rude. Um, they're like New Yorkers. They're busy. And they really don't have time for your West Coast, California, dawdling, macrame, van, carob-coated bullshit. That's what's going on. Um, when you go to New York and you're from L.A., people don't do very well in New York because people in New York are like, what will it be? And people from California are like, how many calories are in the non-fat? Fuck you. That's how many calories. You're a time vampire. You're sucking my life away. I've got to go back to my squalid, fetid apartment and beat the rats to death with a pizza. And Paris is the same way. They're busy, but they'll have time for you if you make the slightest effort. What is the slightest effort? Well, you have to say hello, which in French is bonjour, and if it's nighttime, bonsoir. And that's really it. And then when they're done helping you, you go, merci. And if you want to get crazy, merci beaucoup. It also helps to sing. I don't mean like Edith Piaf or whatever. You don't walk into a place and go, no, regretly. But walk into a place and you'll go, uh, they'll go bonjour and you go, bonjour. And then when they're done helping you, you go, merci beaucoup, like that. And lots of gestures really help. That's why they're so great at slapstick. Because I don't speak, my French is wretched, très uh, mal. Uh, and uh, I'll be in a place and I'll be like, uh, and then they go, and you go, and then they'll go, and you like, and then they do it. It's, you can really do that in Paris. Whereas if you do it in LA, people are like, uh, uh. Let Jennifer Aniston cut in line. This is the worst coffee bean I've ever been to. But you can mime and point and shout and laugh and make noises. Uh, and they're, they're not rude. They're accommodating. They really are. We were in Paris a year before. And I try to go to Paris every year 
with my wife. And by the way, Jennifer picks all the films in this film club, in case anyone wasn't aware of that. She picked High and Low, and she's had a year and a half to think about another movie. And she, she picked Mr. Hulo's Holiday because it's, as we say, great summer fun. Uh, it's about someone who goes on vacation, so it's like nothing that any of us have done in a year and a half. Uh, and uh, Jennifer and I go to Paris every year, and I actually have people say to me these two things all of the time. One, why do you go to Paris with your wife? Honestly, people will say to me, why, why do you go to Paris with your wife? I'm like, um, because I want her to love me. I don't know what it is you're doing for your significant other, um, but I don't think taking her to Fatburger in the car park just down the road is really going to cut the, uh, the cheddar cheese, the fromage. Uh, Paris really works wonders on a relationship. It really does. It brightens things right up. And, uh, well, we're going to go to Paso Robles to that wine place. <laughs> and um, hooray for you. Uh, so that one, and then my other question that I get asked is people go, Greg, you're a comedian. Where's your favorite place to do comedy? Yeah, because somehow all other forms of performing are understandable to everyone. Everyone knows what singers do and bands. Everyone knows what a dancer does, a mime, a poet, a circus performer. No one ever says to a circus performer, where's your favorite place to do circus performing? Because <laughs> what are they going to say? Well, in a ring, generally. Uh, with a light shining on me. Uh, but people don't, people misunderstand comedy utterly. Uh, they'll say things like, um, do you like hecklers? I'm like, yeah. Um, when I go to a, like a Subway sandwich stop, I will start at the end of the line and be like, hey, dickhead! You call that spreading mayonnaise? Um, I think heckling is so funny and uh, complete. First of all, I work alone. And if you want to get Western with me, I will crush you like a fucking jelly bean and leave you in a pile. And the whole audience will be on my side at the end of the thing. Um, writers never understand that. And two, people will say to me, where's your favorite place to do comedy? And I'll say Paris. And then the next question is, and I think you can see where this is going. Well, do they understand your humor there? Um, yeah, because I perform for crowds that don't speak any English at all. It's something I prefer to do as a challenge. Much like tonight, the mild laughter you've rained upon me and the respect that you've shown by honoring each joke with a moment of silence is something that I crave. So I like to go to foreign countries and play for crowds that have no understanding of English whatsoever so I can just stand there and gibber at them. Um, obviously, Parisians speak English, and there will be a lot of expats, as it were, uh, in the crowd when you do stand-up or, or comedy in Paris. So, they, yes, they do get the jokes. Uh, and then uh, uh, other people will say this to me. I'm not kidding. Um, where do you like to go? Paris. And they'll go, Paris, London? And I'm like, yes, the Twin Cities. <laughs> this Separated by that ice bridge. You just nip across, and there it is. It's shaped like a baguette, and that's how you know you've hit France. Um, so I like to go to Paris, and we were in Paris, and we were um, uh, in a really quaint and curious little bistro that my wife took us to. And so quaint and curious that it was, you know, folding in on itself, like everything awesome in the middle of Paris. The buildings are slightly slanted, and the staircase is like kind of rotted, and you could die. And it's treacherous, and you have to walk up. And I swear to you, that the waiter looked exactly like Pee Wee Herman. 
which was quite amusing, but you have to keep it to yourself. He had a, he had a tan tan do, and it was really short. And I expected him to go, uh, je know you are, but what am, what am je? And he didn't, but it was funny. And uh, so we sat down and we ordered. And uh, it was a pl- kind of place where you order like a carafe of wine. But we ordered a bottle of wine, and it was the most expensive one on the menu. It was like 15 euros or something, or 20 euros. And um, uh, so immediately, we were the most popular table for him. So he was waiting on us, and then another couple came in and sat with us, right? Uh, not with us. Uh, a couple came in who had clearly unsuccessfully tried it earlier in the evening, and were still working it out. Thank you. I thought that might be a little subtle for all of you, but it's pretty painfully apparent when a couple walks in together, and they've tried it, and it's not really happening, but they're going to eat together now to see if there's anything's going to happen later. And they were quite young and whatnot, so I felt for them. And because it's Paris, uh, they were like, could we sit over here? And the waiter's like, no. The place was empty, and he put them right next to us. So all they ate was a bowl of soup, which I thought, wow. uh, This is like an Alexander Solzhenitsyn novel at this point. And um, you can Google that on the way home. (laughs) Uh, and so I, we're having our steak and our, our French fries. And yes, I ordered French onion soup because that's how I roll. So we finish our meal and now Jennifer and I are pretty high. We've had a bottle of wine and we're laughing. This couple's already left. They, they, their meal was completely aborted halfway through. And I thought, oh God, you guys, go get some ice cream or something. And to, you know, walk, walk around the Seine. Uh, we go downstairs, uh, and I, we dismount these treacherous stairs to get down. And the guys uh, got an old-fashioned uh, 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 till, you know, with the machine that you punch the buttons. And um, the, the ordering uh, pike that you put the orders on, that, you know, like that, that if you think about it, it's the most dangerous thing that you could ever have in a restaurant. Because one errant putting a check down on it, and you'd be like, ah! You know, like, you'll have stigmata the rest of your life. And... So he's there, and uh, I bring the check down, and he's going through it, and he's like, "Um, right?" And he goes, uh, "It's like 60, 70 euros or whatever." And I go, um, "There must be some terrible mistake, because I have a personality, and we're in Paris, and you have to show some backbone. It's like being in a club, or I'll make it even more plain for you." for those of you who are from down here. It's like going to San Francisco. It's a challenge. Why? Because no one is gonna be nice to you or polite at any time. They're gonna be frosty cold and arrogant because they're sure where they live is cooler than where you're from. And if you go to San Francisco and you say you're from LA, they'll go like, well then, welcome. Because you can go to San Francisco uh, say City Lights Bookstore, for instance, at the hub of uh, hipness and beatnik lore, and walk in there and say, uh, I'm looking for uh, an Italian restaurant in the neighborhood. And behind the counter, they'll go, well, I really hope you find it. It's that warmth that distinguishes us. I've had New Yorkers tell me they felt nervous in San Francisco, and I'm like, I know. That's how we play there. We want to keep you off balance. There's lots of weed, and the views are breathtaking, and then the people are like completely indifferent to your existence. Because they're busy 
Later, we've got to go do a bong hit and sit out in front of a coffee shop with a computer and pretend to write a book. <laughs> so we're quite busy, you see. People are so industrious here in LA. They get up in the morning and they kill one person each day till they're popular and stuff. You know, it's, it's a lot of work here in L.A. You've got to stomp on other people so that you can have a gig and get your script and turn around at Sony or whatever. In San Francisco, none of that's happening. Uh, the worst thing that's going to happen to you in San Francisco is you're going to get trapped by a tech bro for half an hour and have to hear about vertical insertions and how cool cars that don't run on gas are. Sorry, I thought I was alone for a second. So I say to him, uh, because they're testing you in San Francisco, you have to have a personality. You have to be able to step up. It's the, it's the one fatal flaw of Los Angeles. People here are bright, intelligent, there's lots to do. It's not as bad as everyone says. The food is really good, the weather's awesome. But people here can have a severe lack of personality. For instance, if you're standing next to someone in a place of business, you might go, hi, how are you? And in LA, you'll get. In fact, here's my impression of the person at the table while you're talking to someone that you met or talking to someone that you know at a coffee shop, you, you're walking by, you see someone you know, but they're sitting with someone you don't know. Here's my impression of the person that you don't know while you're talking to the person you know. <laughs> this is Doug. Hey. Doug's in charge of shaving people at Paramount. He's in charge of casting hosts for Jeopardy. By the way, if you were going to mount, uh, uh, my wife and I were talking about it today. I literally could have cast Jeopardy from my house. I know a lot of funny people. I could have got on the phone for 15 minutes and whipped up someone who'd blow your fucking mind, who was a lesbian Filipino challenge, vertically challenged person. I would have been able to tick every fucking box in America and still bring you someone funnier than the guy who picked himself. Not since they set Dick Cheney loose on that vice president hunt. Has anyone looked around the room and gone, whoa. There goes Jupiter. There goes Mars. Fuck, the entire universe does revolve around me. I love picking yourself for a job and then blowing the job out of the water. By the way, Sony has a phone, right? They didn't know that he had a podcast and shit. They didn't know that he had a history or a backstory or anything. No one at Sony had a phone that could go, whoa, 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 that's fucked up. Apparently, they all just went, harumph, harumph. Rubber stamp, good night. What we want to do is replace the aloof charm of Alex Trebek with a, a smarmy 40-year-old white guy who's going to stand sideways and go, oh, I'm sorry. Incorrect. Uh, so I'm in Paris, and... Uh, he says, the check is 70 euros. And I said, there must be some terrible mistake. And he looks up from under his glasses and goes, well then, perhaps you had better call Detective Harry Callahan. <laughs> and I said, all right then, but I'll be back tomorrow night to get to the bottom of this. 
And he says, for you, the mystery is never over. This is word for word, you guys. I'm going to make a word of that up. And that's why I love Paris. Because it's not happening in a lot of other places. No one tells you to go look for Detective Harry Callahan and makes a 1971 film reference. One time we were in Paris and uh, we were at this cafe on uh, the Ile de Saint-Louis. Or the Ile de Cité, I can't remember. One of the little eels. Uh, one of the islands in the middle of the river so that you have to cross over to go to the mainland. <clears throat> and uh, we're sitting there eating and it was really windy that day, right? It was like an April spring day in Paris, whatnot. The wind was blowing so hard that all the wine glasses and water glasses blew over off everyone's table and shattered on the, uh, the cobblestones. And the French waiters came out like this and they had the, the waistcoats on, right? The, the black vests and the, you know, the little bow ties. It's a really traditional place. And they came out and they saw the glass on the ground and they were like, ugh, and just walked away. So now there's broken glass everywhere, as Grandmaster Flash once said. And uh, we're sitting there with the broken glass having our wine and the wind's kicking up and a silver Mercedes pulls up on the sidewalk, on the sidewalk. And you know how in Paris there's those weird metal things that are everywhere. It goes, ah! bang boom boom right onto the sidewalk the doors open up the the driver gets out he's clearly got a sidearm right like he's got a gun and the doors open up and out of one side gets a blonde lady uh with a giant with a little dog and out of the other side gets a small man with an enormous dog and they come into the restaurant and we're sitting outside they come by us and the little man is Jean-Paul Belmondo Right? He's got a driver with a jammy, and they've parked on the sidewalk. They didn't park in a parking lot. They just bonk right on front of the restaurant on the sidewalk. He kicked my chair, and I looked up, and I was like, oh. right? Belmondo. And he goes, pardon. <laughs> and I was like, who the fuck are you talking to? So he sits down with his wife, and... They both order, and he ordered, I'll never forget it, a hamburger with an egg on top and a, on a bed of French fries, and proceeded to get it. The wife had an enormous salad. She never spoke to him or looked at him through the entire meal. She just forked the salad into her mouth, and the little dog sat on the chair, and his big dog sat next to him, and people came up in a, in a row, uh, one after the next, to meet him and he had had a stroke so he couldn't move his right hands so he was shaking everybody's left hand and taking pictures and whatnot and literally everyone in the restaurant at one point the chef came out first of all the waiter came out the one who'd let the glass lay on the ground then the head waiter came out then the chef came out who I assure you looked exactly like the chef in Lady and the Tramp he had an enormous mustache and he was big and fat with a white bloody apron on and a little hat perched on his head. And every one of them came over to the table and were like, no, 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 no. They were unbelievable. You haven't seen sycophancy like this since Moses was presented to the Pharaoh. <laughs> and uh, just fantastic. There's a German lady sitting next to us and she's rigid like this. And finally we lurk at her and she goes, do you know who that is? And we're like, yes, we do. So now we've ordered everything on the menu. We've ordered crepes, we've ordered dessert, we've ordered extra coffee, we've had two more glasses of wine, we've had an aperitif. No one will leave because Belmondo is still sitting there going. 
So we get up and now we stand across from the restaurant and just stare at him from there for a while because that's how sad it can be. Uh, It, uh, there's a certain romance to it, I think, that eludes Los Angeles. Not that Los Angeles isn't full of fucking stars. Um, I've seen Celia uh, Ward at Barney's. Uh, I've seen Sharon Stone drive through an intersection at 75 miles an hour in a gold BMW, not looking at the road. <laughs> that was a glorious moment. She literally drove through the intersection like this. Not looking the light, whatever. Then I saw her in a hair salon once, and I saw her, and she came bowling up, right? And she's reasonably tall. I've seen Sharon Stone a bunch of times somehow. And uh, I go, hi, Sharon Stone, because I always use all stars, uh, both names of everyone. When you meet a star, use both their names. Because if you yell, hey, Sharon, there might be a few other Sharons in the room, and they might look. Just a safety tip. I said, hi, Sharon Stone. How are you today? And she went like this. Great! And I was like, wow. Wow. Then, another time I saw Sharon Stone. I have four Sharon Stone stories. I was at the airport, and she was going through security. And uh, she took off her leather jacket, and she was wearing, like, a white wife beater underneath. And she's shapely. And... The security guard, the TSA guy, went like this. And then turned to me and went, uh, oh God, I just blanked on the movie. What's the movie where she kills people with the ice pick? What's the Paul Verhoeven movie from the... Oh yeah, Basic Instinct, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> of course I remember that element of the movie. The movie that she made with Michael Douglas. Uh, that TSA guard turns to me and goes... Basic Instinct's my favorite movie. <laughs> I watched it again last night. And I was like, you don't, you're not making a chemical bomb or anything, are you? Because this is way more information than I need from the TSA guy. And then another time I saw Sharon Stone, I went to a doctor, and uh, I was in the pharmacy adjacent to the doctor. And I went in, and it was a very quick visit. I came back out. Sharon Stone was there with her assistant. I presume it was her assistant because there was a small, dark-haired, beleaguered woman <laughs> at her behest, right? Sharon was standing there, and she was in high dudgeon. Uh, in other words, she was unhappy. And you could tell because she was radiating unhappiness. And uh, she was, you know... <clears throat> and the assistant was cowering. I went into my doctor's appointment. I was there maybe five minutes. I came back out of the doctor and Sharon Stone was like this. And I was like, whatever you got in the interim was so strong that it completely changed the tide. I should be leading toward a big ending here because it's really about that time. But I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna let myself off the hook. Traditionally, the comic likes to end on a giant laugh, but I feel that after a year and a half, we can eschew those petty bourgeois traditions and boldly venture into the Zoom meetings that we've been used to for the last year, where nothing really happens and no one's wearing pants and it's a huge letdown. Uh, in any case, oh, this picture is delightful, and uh, for several reasons. One, it's got regular people in it,
And two, uh, in all of Jacques Tati's movies, um, he's a hapless sort of person uh, that is a symbol uh, that we're all supposed to relate to uh, as someone you might know, someone you kind of recognize, a cipher. And all of the people around him are horrible bourgeois assholes. And so it's a fantastic view of society. It's like watching White Lotus, but with the sound turned off. <laughs> and uh, there, it's a silent picture uh, in so much as there's not a lot of chit chat. Uh, but there is noise and uh, background noise and music in the picture as well. I have no idea why he chose to do everything silently other than he's a genius, a slapstick comedian. Um, I want to thank you uh, again for coming out tonight. I was really uncertain how many people would show up for a movie. As I say, I haven't taken my mask off indoors uh, for a year and a half. And if I get the Delta variant after this, I have everyone's name that's come here tonight and I'm going to chase you to your house and kill you. I'm going to beat you to death, and then I'm going to make you spend a vacation with me in Florida. <laughs> which is located here. <laughs> here. I'm surprised this has America on it. This looks like an old globe. In any case, on the 22nd, we'll be showing uh, The Lady Vanishes here. The 22nd of September, we'll be back for that. And then we're deciding which picture to show for Halloween. Um, I'll be doing The Nightmare Before Christmas on October 29th at the Bank of California Stadium. Uh, it, I say it because it's, it's spelled B-A-N-C, and I have no idea why. <laughs> why it's Le Banque du California. It's uh, next to the LA Coliseum, so you can relive scenes from the Omega Man. Thank you. That was for the gentleman in the room. I will say one last thing uh, before we uh, show the picture. And thank you very much for coming out tonight. Uh, we were first at the uh, Cinematheque on uh, uh, Hollywood Boulevard, uh, the Egyptian and whatnot. And we showed a bunch of pictures there. And the crowd there is very nice. Uh, and often a lot of men uh, who live alone <laughs> and maybe aren't as socialized as a lot of us. And uh, they would come for movies and be angry if I would get something wrong. <laughs> then we moved to Santa Monica, uh, to the Aero Theater. And we were there for a year and showed a lot of good pictures. And the audience there was completely indifferent to whether you got anything wrong or not. Because they were so rich that the world was perfect no matter what happened. <laughs> Trump, no Trump, whatever. <laughs> right? I mean, the property value on this place has just gone boom over the last year. And, uh, and now we're here in Los Feliz. Uh, and just being near the House of Pies, where it used to be. And uh, uh, a, what I love about Vermont Avenue more than anything is that there's a hipster restaurants, a movie theater, a bookstore. People walk up and down the street. And then there's an enormous giant post office. that faces us, that reminds you of your own mortality <laughs> and how late it's getting. And I think that's the magic of Los Feliz. So thank you for having me. And now we're going to show the picture from 1953, Jacques Tati's uh, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Thanks so much.